Before we begin, I want to talk about the concept, theory, of the two season sixes. Now, this is something that's been circled around for a while. In fact, it was actually referenced in two of the books I was reading in preparation for, actually, last week's episode. But this is the week where it's really relevant, and I don't want to clog an otherwise busy rumination with talking about this. So, the idea here is that season six feels like two seasons to many people. There's the first half, which uh, is, it's actually less than half, but it's basically uh, episodes one through nine, which is kind of more high concept, more science fiction-y kind of a things. And then you've got Chain of, uh, yeah, Chain of Command leading to the end, which is far more uh, personal, political, thriller, you know, down-to-earth kind of stories. And, and this is important, much darker in overall tone. Now, to be clear, even the actual creators of the show have acknowledged this strange disparity between the two halves of season six. But they also admitted flat out that this is completely unintentional. None of this was a deliberate choice by anyone. Things just kind of lined up this way. I'm just curious what you guys think of this idea. I will admit that in general, I tend to think of the latter half of season six more favorably than the earlier half, even though the earlier half did have some really good episodes in it. <clears throat> And two lamentations. Anyways, <clears throat> so the left hand, right hand thing. Did you know it doesn't actually work that way? People have done un, you know, unknown tests, a blind test where they'll toss something at someone. And if if you just toss something straight on, yeah, they'll probably grab it like this. But if you like, if I'm like this and you toss something at me, I will probably try to grab it with my left hand without meaning to. And this is what the test showed. I just think that's funny because the crux of the episode leans on that so hard. But hey, it's Moriarty, and it's Barkley. How can I not like this episode? Don't worry, I do actually like this episode. It is a good episode, in my opinion. It's mostly a character piece. There is a threat of the week, but the threat of the week is de-emphasized, so I'm willing to let it slide. But once again, we do have a threat of the week. I think this the only episodes that didn't have a threat of the week so far in Season 6 is Chain of Command. That's uh, it's not a good track record. Anyways... You're probably thinking, hang on, Laura, I thought you gave this whole speech about rights issues and having to pay out money and blah, blah, blah. And I stand by all of that. However, this is actually funny. You remember uh, a while ago we covered The First Duty? And in that episode, I mentioned how it wasn't as clear-cut about the whole Tom Paris slash uh, uh, Locarno situation. Like, it wasn't as clear-cut as I originally believed. I repeated the information, it's just I probably should have dug into it more because it turns out it was more complex than I thought. Well, funny story. Turns out, basically, everyone back in, when they were making this episode back in Season 2, legitimately thought that there were rights issues, that there were money issues. Well, turns out that there was either a mistake or they had backed off on that. Now, i, I got to say it this way. Now, when they wanted to do this Moriarty episode, they reached out to, I forget the name of the estate, please forgive me, and the estate said, yeah, no, we'll be happy, just give us a small fee, and apparently it was a very small amount of money, like a very reasonable amount of money, and you could go ahead and have licensing rights. Okay, that's it? What was the big kerfuffle about? Well, according to the story that Jerry Taylor in specific was told, it was actually an issue regarding some other movie that Paramount was working on that had nothing to do with Star Trek thing is, I don't quite believe that. 
Everything I read from back in Season 2 around elementary deer data made it pretty clear that there were legal entanglements, that lawyers had actually started to get involved. No actual suits filed, obviously, but that the lawyers were looking into things and that there were clear tensions on all sides, and they decided to drop it because we're not going to get involved in this fight. Fast forward a while, and we get to this point, and at this point in Season 6, the Moriarty brand that is to say the Sherlock Holmes brand wasn't as big anymore as it was back then, and, more to the point, wouldn't be as big again for quite a while, not until they started doing uh, all the Holmes stuff in the aughts. And TNG had become much bigger. And so they had more money and more weight, and so they decided, yeah, okay, sure, go ahead. That's my take on it. It could have just been an innocent misunderstanding, though, and I do want to report that, because that's a possibility. Either way, they handed over the pittance of money, and said, sure, here we go. And shazam, they got this episode. Now, funny little fact, right at the beginning of the episode, Barkley is there, literally just so Moriarty can explain the plot of elementary deer data to him. On the one hand, that makes perfect sense, because there's probably plenty of viewers who have forgotten elementary deer data, or didn't see it back then, either because they're new to the show, or they just missed it. Remember this... <laughs> remember... Some of you probably weren't actually around at this time, and I don't mean that as an insult. But back in the day, we didn't really have Netflix in DVD format or in digital. If you wanted to rewatch an episode, you got to wait for the rerun to randomly show it. Or, if you happened to have a VCR because you were better off, which I did happen to be, I'll admit it, you would record the episodes you like. Hence the VHS collection, because I only recorded the ones I really liked to rewatch on my own time. This was one of them, of course. And I bring all that up because, basically, long story short, it was actually a very good move for them to go ahead and briefly recap things. On the other hand, though, why do that to Barkley, of all people? He's actually probably the worst possible choice for that. But Lore, I hear you say, he wasn't around back then. You're telling me Barkley, who was an engineer, who was very interested in holodecks and holograms and holographic technology, and will continue to be for the rest of his run into and through Voyager, had... No idea whatsoever about the Moriarty situation, something that was probably published on every single holodeck or holographic-related, I don't know what the Federation equivalent would be, book in, in, that there was. That probably made headlines, at least amongst the academic and engineering circles. They made a sentient, sapient and sentient AI, for God's sakes, on accident in the holodeck. And you're telling me Barclay's never even heard of this. Sure. That being said, I do like Barclay's inclusion, although he is much more of a guest star than usual. He, he only really has the three scenes. Although, I agree with Bernal D. Moore, the final line wouldn't have worked with anyone else. So they have a really long teaser. Again, catching the audience back up. Now, what I find funny is apparently several of the writing staff got confused with the layers within layers of this episode, and had to have diagrams for that. And I mean no offense. But how? There's only two layers, or I guess technically three layers. There's real life, the holodeck, and then the holodeck in the holodeck. And that's it. There's only the three steps total. I do want to give special praise, though. Now, this is actually kind of funny to me. Apparently, they do this thing where they don't actually show the outside of the ship. No establishing shots, no exterior shots. All the way, for the entire first chunk of the movie, like for the first 28 minutes of the episode, as soon as they enter the holodeck, it's all interior. 
Now, that's actually a really neat trick. And I noticed it, and I was like, oh, that's awesome, because it helps to get across the idea that the show is now contained within an environment, like the holodeck, which it is. You probably don't even notice it your first time around. But on your second time, you're like, hang on a second. Because, you know, those quick establishing shots are really normal, even when there's otherwise stuff just going on internally. The first time we see the ship externally is right after the reveal that they're on the holiday. Literally the next scene is an establishing shot of the Enterprise from the outside. Now, I was all pleased with this, and I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. I can't wait to write this down. I decided to look it up. Apparently, this is actually a pretty common tactic in Star Trek, and I'm just an idiot and never noticed it before. Because they did this on... Uh, let's see here. They did it on Distant Voices. They did it on Inquisition. They did it on Projections. They did it on These Are the Voyages. And I just completely missed all of these because I'm an idiot. Who knew? I mean, I guess we all knew that I was an idiot, but you get the idea. Anyways, so Moriarty's all pissed off. Okay, that's understandable. Why? Here's the thing. Obviously, we couldn't show the Moriarty Home stuff on camera, even though they wanted to, because of either the mix-up or the legal problems or money problems or whatever the actual real reason was, okay? That doesn't mean the characters didn't. There's plenty of ways to write that stuff was happening off-camera. They could have very easily and smoothly written it that Picard in personal, and probably Data, you can't tell me, Data never checked up on this. With all his personal, you can't tell me Geordi never checked up on this. And apparently, though, that's exactly true. All three of them just walked off and were like, yep, nope, we're done. Even Pulaski never brought it up. Fun fact, they don't even mention her name in this episode. I don't even know what to make of that one. <clears throat> so they just apparently just peaced out and really did leave him. And you know what? If they actually did that, I'd be pretty pissed off too. That's kind of strange. And horrible. If nothing else, at least some kind of maintenance apparently should have been done since, you know, the whole fragmentary method, uh, was it the, uh, the fragmentation of the memory, the priority memory was happening. So he was occasionally getting blips of being conscious, but just being in the computer, which is apparently horrible. In short, it comes across as if they're frankly negligent. And I think that's the biggest flaw of the episode, really. Picard, in this episode, talks at length with Moriarty about how monumental of a thing this is, how huge a deal it is that they have accidentally created life. This actually calls back to The Offspring, where he tried to get across the idea to Data about how huge of a deal it was that he was creating a new life form, not just having a child, which was a point that Data just could, kept not getting. And I'm complete with Picard on this one. This is something that has to be very carefully thought of, very carefully moved forward with, very carefully analyzed. You don't just blunder about on this. What do you think this is, DOS or Enterprise? I'm sorry, that's mean. You get my point, though. It isn't something you should just blunder about with. And, and yet, for all of his insistence that this is this big deal, they never followed up on this. Like, he sent it off to, to home. You know, to, to whatever scientist back on Earth. The end. Peace. All right, done with that. Out of sight, out of mind. Really? That's actually kind of negligent, which is just weird. Anyways, <clears throat> as usual, the actor playing Moriarty just does a great job uh, and, and absolutely nails his part. They also do... 
They also, he mentions the idea of the matter being pulled off the holodeck. Now, i got to mention something here. I myself have given my own headcanon, and I have to call it that, that the holodeck doesn't just do everything, 100% of everything with force fields. And I've given many reasons why. Uh, food is the most obvious one. So, in my opinion, the holodeck has always, it just makes sense if, for it to have always been a combination of replication and holograms, okay? That being stated, as weird as this may sound, I wonder how feasible it would be for him to be projected, even if he has no interaction with things. Now, I know the hollow emitter was literally centuries off, and a brilliant invention over on Voyager while I'm at it. By the way, quick, quick anecdote. Did you know that when they were first designing Voyager, they literally called the Doctor Hollow Moriarty? No joke. Anyways, <clears throat> so obviously the mobile emitter is way off, technologically speaking. But couldn't they just have a standard holographic projector to visually showcase him and give him some kind of input so he can see and hear and be seen and be heard? He just can't, you know, interact with anything. I know that's not ideal, but it's the very first thing that came to my mind when I was a kid watching this. I don't know. Maybe, well, there's no maybe. They didn't think about that, so it didn't come up. Whatever. I'm sure we can talk our way around this. It's too complicated or whatever. Sure. Anyways. <clears throat> well, there's, there's actually a nice bit here. There's this part where Picard... What is my chair doing? Picard questions how in the world Moriarty was capable of taking control of the ship, and, and he has no answer for this. There's an old concept. It's called because plot. And it's when something happens because the author needs it to happen. And it actively makes no sense. It is bad writing. Okay? So this happens because plot, but this isn't bad writing. This is actually very good writing. Because Moriarty needs to take over the ship for his plan to happen. So I can just imagine him sitting there thinking, okay, I, I need to, to show that I've taken over the ship to confuse it. How do I say I've done that? You know what, we'll just make it happen. <laughs> and it happens because plot in character in his own holodeck story that he's writing. It's a nice little touch, and I rather enjoyed it. Actually, there's a lot of little touches. Uh, Troy's uniform is a little weird. Um, uh, what else? There was something else. Uh, did I write it down? There were a few tiny little details here and there that they were, you know, hints basically, foreshadowing that they were in other than the obvious camera work and the no exterior shot thing that I mentioned. <sighs> So they mention the idea of beaming holographic matter off the holodeck. Now, obviously, that makes no sense because holographic matter isn't matter. You, you can't... You're trying to beam an image out. It, let me try to parallel this. Now, fortunately, the episode does treat this correctly and does a good job of this. But what you're trying to do... I want you to try to imagine that you're watching a video on YouTube of some bald idiot talking about Star Trek, okay? I know that's hard, but... Just try for me, okay? Now, I want you to imagine that you want to beam this image that's being projected on your monitor out into real life. Now, I put it that way because that helps to emphasize how impossible what they're trying to do really is. Remember, Voyager actually messed this up several times, so whatever. But remember, that image on the monitor, that's not the actual data. The actual data is over there on your computer. That's where the real thing is. The actual hologram is over on that unit. What you're seeing is the projection of the data from the unit. 
thus beaming the unit out of the holodeck would be easy. Clong, and then it just clonk, falls onto the holodeck pad, right? Beaming the image out. You can see why that's not just impossible. That's, that's like, that's running into the problem from the wrong angle entirely. Hence my idea earlier of the emitter thing. Anyways. So Picard puts in the codes at 28 minutes and 30 seconds. Now this is also pretty well crafted in terms of the narrative. Because what happens... Ooh, forgive me, my back is giving me issues today. What happens ah, is that Picard puts in the codes as Geordi is writing with his wrong, incorrect hand. I forget if it's left or right. I think it's his left hand. And Data's like, huh. And then he's like, well, hang on. And then tosses the thing in him and turns and says, Captain, we're, we're not on the ship. We're, we're on the hologram. Seconds later. And by basically complete coincidence, this lines up this way. Keeping in mind, Moriarty's entire plan was always keep them trapped until I can manage to get this information out of Picard, and then in so doing, take over the entire ship and force them to help me. He also is effectively... See, this is actually kind of a brilliant plan, except for the massive flaws in it. I don't blame Moriarty for that, though, really. Um, he thinks that by faking a disaster in the holodeck, he'll trick them into being brilliant enough into figuring out a way to fix all this. He is also simultaneously making a real disaster happen in real life so that they will be heavily inclined to try and fix this problem. So both sides, it's, it's burning at both ends, right? He's trying to get this problem solved from both ends. The problem is, as I mentioned, there's everything in the way. The way this actually finally ends up is Picard and Data figure this out, and they only figure it out because of the glitch, by the way, which is funny. I imagine at some point or another they would have accidentally stumbled into the solution, but... So, they, they figure it out, and they like, okay, we're going to fake feed information to them to try and solve this and make our own new holodeck program, holodeck program three, 2 at this point, the layer 3. Now... This is an interesting insight into Moriarty's character. I've talked before about a villainous character. Villainous, however, does not necessarily mean evil, as bizarre as that may sound. Villainous is simply an inclination towards a certain mindset, forcing something to happen rather than coercing it, or um, commanding and demanding rather than asking or seeking permission. Th that kind of mindset, right? Now, you can see why villainous usually lends itself towards evil, but it's not necessarily evil itself. We could argue if Moriarty is evil or not, and actually I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. Ultimately, I'm not sure if I would call him evil so much as, um, let's call it desperate. He is still villainous because of the, the mindset he has. He coerces, through, well, he violently coerces, he tries to force the situation into actually doing something. But at the same time, I can't blame him, per se, because he feels helpless and powerless. Again, desperate. He is, legitimately, worried that if he just gets put back in memory, then that's it. And he may never come out again. Or worse, he'll stay in there with his vague, hellish knowledge of the fact that years are passing, right? So he is, in short, terrified. And that's why I have difficulty personally labeling him as evil. Now... In the interests of fairness, he does go too far. He does push too hard. Just like someone who is panicked and terrified would do so. I'm not trying to excuse him. just trying to explain a little bit what I think the mentality going into him is here. The catch here 
is his demands really are insane. There's no, there's no good way to put about that. And it's really a damn shame because the actual solution they come up with is so obvious, I'm a little weirded out nobody thought of it before. Now, if you approached Moriarty and offered him that solution, he would reject it. I don't want to live in a simulated world anymore. I want to live in the real world. Which leads to the other villainous mindset from the crew, from Picard. Because what Picard does is coerces him, I'm using the wrong word, forces him, without his knowledge, into a prison, a comfy prison, if you remember my discussion back in the Inner Light. A prison that is not velvet, but rather one that is so comfortable and relaxing that they don't realize they are being imprisoned within it, that they want to stay. And he gives him all that he possibly could have and more. Effectively as a compromise, it is perceived as a good act, and it could be argued to be a good act, but it is still a villainous act, which is, of course, rather apropos, that the heroes had to turn villainous in, t in terms of mindset in order to overwhelm the villainous victim in terms of mindset. And you'll notice how, despite the fact that we do have clear protagonists and antagonists, I don't think we have any truly evil threat of the week this episode. Not, not really. It's a nice touch. Other than the damn star thing. So we still have a threat of the week. It's just, it's over there in the distance. I'm looking at my notes here. There's this bit where Moriarty is beamed out. And then he gets on the shuttle and is like, I'm not going to release the ship until I'm on the shuttle. Why? Oh, I know what you're thinking. He, he just doesn't want... He, he's terrified. If he's still on the shuttle, then he's safe. He's free. And if he thinks that, then he's a moron. Or at least he's ignorant, which is probably more likely. Again, I don't blame him for this. But let's be real for a second. That shuttle would not protect him at all. If they wanted to kill him, they could do so effortlessly. If he tried to flee, they could catch him effortlessly. If they wanted to recapture him, you get where I'm going with this. He is basically putting himself utterly at their mercy. He just insisted on the shuttle first for whatever reason. Probably because he didn't really understand what he was asking. <laughs> I want to put myself at your mercy even more than I was before. Like, he is arguably more defenseless on that shuttle than if he were still on the Enterprise. No joke. Anywho. <clears throat> so they put him in the simulation. They give him the full life. I wonder if they've programmed him to age because if they haven't, at some point he's going to probably stumble into a wall. And it'd be even worse if they have that fragmentation of protected memory. Just saying, that might be a problem. Look into it every now and again. It's not that hard to check up on something every year. Anyways. Barclay gives the final thought. Computer end program. <laughs> I bet you're expecting me to talk about the simulation theory. And I'm not going to, because I think it's dumb. I'm sorry. I don't think there's a shred of credibility behind it. It's one of those, the facts fit it, but it's nonsense kind of things, which I, I see a lot of in real life. But, but, it takes a particular type of creative mind to conceive of the very idea that life, as you've known it, has always been uh, not what you think it is. A lie, or an illusion, or a simulation, or whatever. Not everyone is even capable of thinking that way. And to be blunt, that's why I agree with Moore, that it had to be Barclay who said that. Because Barclay is one of the only people on the Enterprise who could conceive of the very idea that all of his life was on a, was, was actually a simulation. 
Everyone else can say, oh yeah, sure. Barkley's the one who thinks it might actually be real. Just a nice little touch there at the end. Overall, an enjoyable romp. And I hope you've enjoyed my romping. Can I have a romp-a-nations? That's, that's not a bad title. I'll see you next time, guys.